What a good shepherd we serve. And now we turn to his words. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Let's um, ask him quickly and sincerely for his help. Father, your word is before us now. The person of your son is speaking. Lord, we pray that we would hear his voice. We pray that we would respond in faith and obedience. We love you. Guard us now from error and guide us in your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what if we were to share, excuse me, share a meal together? Let's say even the meal next weekend after church. You should plan to come to our fellowship meal. We're providing most of the food, uh, and uh, some of you may want to bring some dessert. So let's, let's say we're, we're eating outside, having a good time. It's after church, and someone brings out a fresh pan of brownies. Yeah. Well, being the generous soul that you are, you grab a knife and offer to cut me a piece. But the thing is... You offer me a piece from this part of the pan. I had to create that myself. Now, let's be clear. I'm not going to say no, right? I mean, I'm going to graciously accept your brownie. After all, it is chocolate, and and it's good. The, the corner piece of the brownie, after all, is better than no piece of the brownie. But <laughs> I got an amen already. But deep down inside, I will be a little sad because everyone knows that the best portion of the brownie is the part in the very center. You know that... <laughs> This is, this is the most engagement I've had in a sermon in a long time. <laughs> the best part is the middle part. You know, the softest, gooeyest part. That's the good stuff. It's like one step up from batter. That's the good stuff. Now, obviously, I say all this in jest, and, and it's okay. Some of you are laughing along with me. I got a couple amens. Some of you are white-knuckling it right now because you prefer the crunchy part. Oh, I don't think that's a sin, maybe just a lack of judgment, but you, you see, it, it's, it's okay if we differ on the piece of the brownie that is the best. Side point, I just have to share this with you. I was looking for a picture like this on the internet. I couldn't find one, uh, so I was happy to oblige by creating one, but, um, but you know what I found? I found for these sick, twisted people, they, they can buy these pans that have partitions in the middle of them. So when you pour your brownie batter, every piece is a corner piece. Just bad stewardship, I think. <laughs> anyway. Okay, we are going to move on. Um, the, the, the point is... Uh, It's okay that we like different parts of the brownie. That's rather inconsequential. We're not going to break fellowship over this, I hope. But there are some things in life, actually that are objectively better than others. There are. And in today's passage, Jesus himself is going to point us to one of those things, something that he calls the good portion. So let me invite you to take your Bibles, if you haven't already, and turn to Luke chapter 10. The very end of Luke Luke 10, we'll be finishing it today, Lord willing. Luke 10, beginning in verse 38. You're reading to verse 40. If you're using the church Bible in front of you uh, in the seat back, that's page 816, Luke 10, beginning in verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, 
You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Well, we're told here in verse 38, if we take it from the top, that Jesus entered a village. We don't know any more about this village here from Luke's gospel, but we learn elsewhere from the gospel of John that this village is actually the village of Bethany, just a few miles, about two miles east of Jerusalem. Now, we're going to hear a whole lot more about this village and specifically this household in this village. Uh, If you read John 11, there's a pretty important story about this household. In that story, we also learn that Mary and Martha have a brother. Maybe you've heard of him before. He goes by the name of Lazarus. But in our account here today, in Luke's gospel, Luke just focuses on these sisters. And this passage is unique to Luke's account. So let's, let's take a look at the example that the Holy Spirit has placed before us today through the instrument of Dr. Luke and his pen. Now, Luke's format at the end of chapter 10 is fairly straightforward. He gives us Mary, verse 39, Martha, verse 40, and then Jesus' words, verses 41 and 42. So, so we're simply going to follow that format today. Mary, Martha, Jesus, as, I, as we work our way through the text. And so we encounter first, of course, in verse 39. Jesus enters into this town, into this village, into the house of Martha and her sister Mary. And we run smack dab into Mary first. Question, where do we find Mary? Well, she is sitting at the Lord's feet, verse 39, and she's listening to his teaching. Now, take note of that posture. These are not cheap words. Her her posture here is quite significant. What Mary is doing is assuming the position of a disciple. That was what disciples would do, after all. They would sit at the feet of their masters, and this is precisely what Mary is presuming to do. She's doing what a disciple does. She's sitting at her master's feet, drinking in every word that he speaks and teaches. I like how one biblical commentator put it. To sit at someone's feet here implies not only attention, but also submission. That's what Mary's doing. She's placing her life at the feet of Jesus and at the truth of his words. I don't know about you, but I find it fascinating here that Mary says nothing in this entire passage. We don't get a word from Mary here in Luke 10. And yet, her actions here in this account speak far louder than words ever could. Perhaps this reminds you of another woman that we read about not all that long ago in Luke's gospel. If you were to go back to to chapter 7 of the gospel of Luke, you may remember that we ran across another woman who was also at Jesus' feet, anointing them with the uh, alabaster, easy for me to say, the alabaster flask of ointment that she had, quite costly, washing Jesus' feet with her tears, wiping them with her hair. Jesus clearly puts forth the example of this woman in Luke 7 as an example for us to follow. Woman at Jesus' feet, Jesus says, take note. Here's another woman at Jesus' feet. We are to take note. kind of makes you stop and think, there seems to be something very significant in Scripture about Jesus' feet. Would you agree? After all, we will all spend time there. You see, one day, the testimony of Scripture is that all of Jesus' enemies will be made a footstool for His feet. So, just kind of follow the logic, follow the eternal timeline. You're either one day going to be sitting at Jesus' feet as his disciple 
in glad submission and surrender to his lordship, or you will be cowed beneath his feet as an enemy who has been made a footstool to the feet of the conquering king. But make no mistake about it, you're going to be at Jesus' feet. Every knee bowed, every tongue confessing that he is Lord. So, we're not very far in here to our passage, but I think this is cause for us to press the pause button on the text and just come up for air, as we like to say, and say, how do we do this? Here's another woman at Jesus' feet doing what Jesus will later call the good thing. She's chosen the good portion. What does this mean then for us? You're in Washington, Pennsylvania in 2023 at Friendship Community Church because... You're probably aware of this, but Jesus is not standing here in the flesh. So how do we sit at his feet? How do we learn from his words? How do we listen to his voice and to his teaching? Well, it doesn't take a great intellectual leap to figure that out now, does it? This, friends, is why we keep coming back to the importance of reading this book and spending time with our Maker, with our Savior, communing with Him in prayer. These things are critical to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. How do we sit at His feet today? Well, we read these eternal words that He's given us to be wise unto salvation. We spend time speaking with him, communing with him. Remember, he's our shepherd, the good shepherd, and the sheep hear his voice and follow. Friends, as long as the Lord gives me life and breath to tell you, I'm just going to keep repeating it, keep telling you, we are supposed to be, as followers of Jesus, people of the book. That's who we are. We're serious about the Scriptures here at Friendship Community Church. And not just because we're booky. Not just because we've got a penchant for the academic. Jesus is mighty to save all kinds of people, and some of you love to read, and some of you don't. And that, friends, has nothing to do with your love and affection and devotion to Scripture. Submitting to the Word of God is not a personality trait. It doesn't appeal to a particular type of person. We love the Word of God. We love to read it. Why? Because we love the voice of our Savior. And if we want to hear His voice, where do we go? Here. How do you sit at His feet? Well, He's given you His words. His eternal, infallible, inspired words. We're people of the book. I want to encourage you. We know this. Make it more than just an intellectual commitment. Make it a, a part of the fabric of your identity, your, your, your very life, to be saturated with the Scriptures. This is how we sit at Jesus' feet and in His Word and, and communing with Him in prayer. Okay, Simple, but important. Before we move on to Martha, I think we've got to see one more thing at least. We should see what would have been very obvious in the first century as this scene was unfolding there in Martha and Mary's house, that there's a woman taking on the position, the posture of discipleship. And that may have ruffled some feathers back then. You see, according to Jesus, it is a good thing, a very good thing for women to be engaged in the study of theology. Mary's not just <laughs> engaged in some kind of sentimental emotionalism, as if she's sitting at Jesus' feet with a daisy picking off petals. He loves me, he loves me not. What's she doing? She's listening to his teaching. Verse 39. Why am I even making this point? Well, because 
there's quite a stink about this in the Christian world and even beyond our, our Christian uh, circle. What ought a man or a woman to do? Are, are there differences in roles that the Lord would, would lay out before us? Well, this much, friends, is crystal clear from this passage here in Luke 10. God has made all his disciples, men, women, children, those who he loves to see, seated at his feet, listening to his voice, leaning in to his teaching. It's a beautiful thing that all of us, regardless of gender or personality type, follow the Lord, that we would love him with all of our heart and soul and mind. You know, the the first and greatest commandment, that's not just for men, it's for everybody. It applies just as much to females as males. And truth be told, this would have been quite a shocking thing. Jesus um, was not a novice to stirring the pot, was he? Here's a woman sitting at his feet, the feet of a rabbi. I like how Philip Ryken describes it. He says that some rabbis permitted women to study the Torah, but forbade them to sit at the feet for formal instructions of a rabbi. Yet Jesus not only permitted it, he positively encouraged it. To him, it was as important to teach women the doctrines of discipleship as it was to teach the men. Sound theology, then, helps us to know God. And, of course, women have just as much need for this as men do. Pretty simple? Beautiful? Now, as beautiful as that truth is, some have tried to push this truth, this glorious Biblical truth beyond the bounds of what Scripture actually teaches. Some will read a passage like this and say, See, here's Mary learning theology. It's okay then to have women serve as pastors and elders in the local church. Hold on. Pump the brakes for a minute. If you're saying that, you've just made a pretty big leap. You see, there's a difference between what's happening here in Luke 10 with Mary at Jesus' feet, learning from his words, submitting, drinking in his teaching, and what the New Testament has to say, quite clearly I might add, about teaching and exercising authority over the body of Christ at large. Stated another way, Applying your heart to know and to obey right doctrine, biblical truths is an activity for everyone, for men, women, children, boys and girls alike. But we are not all called to exercise authority over the body of Christ at large. That's a different topic for a different scripture in a different day. just want us to see clearly what scripture is saying and not run on beyond what it says. That's our posture as followers of God. If this is our source for all life and living, we dare not shrink back from anything Scripture positively affirms, nor should we blaze ahead and go beyond what it clearly teaches. All right. Verse 40. We shift here from Mary to Martha. And the very first thing that Dr. Luke tells us about Martha is that she is distracted with much serving. That's a fascinating word. That the original word here in Greek, the, the word distracted, literally means to be dragged away. Think about that imagery for a moment. To be dragged away. Martha was dragged away by all that she was doing. Isn't that an appropriate description of where we find ourselves sometimes in life? And consider for a moment the things that were distracting her. It wasn't sin, was it? These were noble things, even right and godly things that Martha was doing. She got caught up doing things for Jesus, so caught up, so dragged away in doing things for Jesus that she lost sight of the thing that was the most important, which was hearing his voice. And 
How very easy it is for us, friends, to do the very same thing, for our hearts and minds to be similarly distracted, similarly dragged away. It's possible that we're focusing so much on what we have to do in front of us, oftentimes good things, righteous things. Insert your thing in the equation here. But that we could get dragged away from the person or the presence of Christ by our exhaustive to-do list. Now, this is like low-hanging fruit when we're starting to think about how to apply this to our lives. We live in a culture that is frenetically hurried and busy, don't we? Most of us, myself included, have got way more to do day in and day out than we've got time to do it. For many of us, busyness defines our lives, all that clamors for our attention and our affection. But I want you to see here that this struggle of busyness is not a new one. It's not a 21st century construct. It's not just something that ramped up in the information age. Sure, our tools have exacerbated the frenetic pace of the world around us, but listen, the the demands and the distractions of our heart have always served as a barrier to intimacy with God. Look at Martha. We've got a lot to do on this side of the sun, but our to-do list, as good as it may be, can never be an excuse for a lack of intimacy with our God. See, it's just not true, friend, that you don't have time to pray. It's just not true. It's not true that you don't have time to read or or to listen to. It's great today as you're driving in the car, as you're working out, as you're doing whatever, you can have your earbuds in, you can be listening to Scripture as well as reading it. What a fantastic thing. And it's just not true that you don't have time enough in your day to give to God's Word, to give to God in prayer. After all, the simple truth is, and we all know it, you find time for the things that you value the most. Now, I won't belabor this point. It's just so glaringly obvious. But it's curious to me. No matter how busy I am, I would say the same is true for you, Darn if I don't find time to eat nearly every single day. Why? Well, because if I don't, I'll die. I'll perish, right? And, and I'm going to find a way to, to get some food in my body every day, sometimes maybe a little too much. Do you see? At the end of the day, we do what we want to do. We do what we value and we prioritize. Now, there may be things that you have to do that fill up your schedule like, whoa, I get that. And yet, if this is the good portion, if sitting at the feet of the Savior, if hearing and believing and growing in His words, if communing with Him is the good portion if it's our highest value and prize to be with our Savior, you're going to do it. You're going to do it. I want us to see here in verse 40 two phrases that boil over from Martha's distracted heart here. The first phrase to Jesus, Do you not care? And... The second observation she makes about her sister, she's left me to serve all alone, both here in verse 40. Listen for just a moment to how Martha engages the Son of God. Lord, do you not care that she's left me to serve all alone? You see, I want, I want us to Make sure we're seeing this clearly. Not only is Mary in the hot seat for neglecting her duties, at least according to Martha, she's also including the Lord in this mild rebuke that she gives. Jesus, it's as if 
Martha's saying, can't you see that what's happening here is totally unfair? This is totally out of alignment, Jesus. You should do something about this. You should know better. You know, this phrase rings eerily similar to the time when we saw the disciples in a certain boat on the Sea of Galilee. They used a a similar phrase, didn't they? Lord, don't you care that we are perishing in this storm? Mark chapter 4. You see, this, friends, is part of the human condition, I think. Why is this happening to me? Why am I all alone in this? Lord, don't you see how unfair this is? And what did this attitude cause Martha to do? Well, it's all right here in verse 40. For one, it caused her to interrupt the master's teaching. But it also caused her to at least try to interfere, intervene with her sister's Beautiful relationship with Christ. And here is Martha presuming to tell God the Son what to do. Now before you start wagging your finger at Martha, hold on. Don't you think we do the same? Yeah. Just as it did for Martha... Our distractions can lead us to fall into these traps. Here, what I think is a a twin trap. It's the trap of self-pity, what I like to call spiritual sulking, and I'm an expert at it, I'm sad to say. And uh, another trap, which is the trap of comparing ourselves to others. Isn't that what she's doing? She's feeling sorry for all that she's got to do, and she's stacking her to-do list up against her, her her lot up against the lot of her sister, and she's come to some pretty glaring conclusions. Jesus, don't you care? Make her stop. Well, now we arrive at Jesus' response here at the end of chapter 10, verses 41 and 42. Jesus' answer, so gentle, He's so gracious. Jesus' answer to Martha, we should note, is not, what's wrong with you, you blockhead? I would make a very bad God. (laughs) And so would you. Note that this is not Jesus coming down with the hammer here on Martha. He has every right to. She's out of alignment. She's all backwards in her thinking. Look at the grace and the tenderness that Jesus exhibits as he responds to her. He says in verse 41, excuse me, he says her name not once but twice. Martha. Martha. We should take note there. You see, anytime God calls your name, that's probably enough. But when he says it twice, well, we have great precedent in Scripture for these double names. When the Lord calls your name twice, this, these are beautiful, tender, emotional, sweet moments. These are an expression from God to us. When God calls our name twice, these are expressions of emphasis. He's trying to get her attention. Martha, Martha. Let me give you just a couple other examples. We've got them up on the screen here. Remember when Jesus does the same for Simon Peter? Simon. Simon. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you. You think that got his attention? Saul, Acts chapter 9. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard to kick against the goads. Jerusalem, we'll see this here in a few few chapters, excuse me. 
Luke 13, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her brood under her wings. You see the tenderness. You see the emphasis when God calls your name. Martha, Martha, Jesus says. Martha's got many things that she's concerned about, verse 41. That was Jesus' assessment. But Jesus essentially says to Martha, busy Martha, Martha, why don't you cross all that other stuff off your list and circle just one thing? You see it? Many things at the end of verse 41. One thing, the beginning of verse 42. One thing is necessary. What's that one thing? Well, Jesus proceeds to call that one thing the good portion And it's the thing that Mary has chosen to submit to Him, sitting at His feet, hearing His words, responding in submission and obedience. This is indeed the good portion. I mean, let's be real for a minute. There is nothing sinful about serving Jesus. After all, in a few chapters, Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem, as we've seen. He's going he's gonna to get there soon, and he's going to send Simon Peter and John ahead to go prepare a place for him for a Passover dinner. They're going to be serving him. There's all kinds of details there. There's everything right about serving your master. It's not that Martha's sin was that she was doing stuff. There's a spiritual gift in the Bible called service. This is not Martha bad, Mary good, service bad, sitting good. That's not what Scripture is teaching here. But rather than Martha's priorities in service had become so inflated, her worry had reached a fever pitch that she was no longer concerned about the right things to prioritize, and she'd been dragged away distracted. We should realize also that Jesus, although he does ask his disciples to serve him, Jesus doesn't need her service. You just remember a little while ago, he fed like 5,000 people with some loaves and fish. Is he wringing his hands, wondering if they're going to have enough to eat? Oh, Jesus doesn't need her service. He values her service, but he calls her here to the most important thing. Again, the good portion. I I was reading through this thinking, um, as I often do about food, um, (laughs) I was thinking about sitting down to a nice dinner. Right? Like, what would it be like if you sat down to a, a steak dinner, you're, you're out to eat with your spouse, or uh, you're just having a, a, a great meal with some friends, and they, they, they put this beautiful steak dinner in front of you, and as the dinner unfolds, everybody else is enjoying good food and fellowship, you're playing with like the parsley on the end of the plate, right? Just the garnish on the fringes. That would be ridiculous. Eventually, the person across from you at the dinner table would say, What are you doing? Eat the good stuff. Get that salad out of your mouth. <laughs> Salads, it's good. That's good too. That's where the analogy breaks down. The good portion. Don't ignore the good portion. In saying this about submitting to Him, about sitting and hearing His words, Jesus is merely echoing the glorious truth that Scripture has been repeating over and over and over from the Old Testament through the pages of the New Testament, which is this, that a relationship with God gives us above all things God. He is the prize. A relationship with Him is what we're all after. I think of the Psalms 
and how they remind us over and over and over again of, interestingly enough, this very same language, this good portion language. Let's just look at some examples before we, we continue. It's, it's worth noting this. Uh, per- perhaps, although this is not a difficult concept to understand, perhaps you need to be reminded this morning of what in life is truly good, of what things truly will satisfy a weary soul. It's the presence of God. Listen, listen to the psalmist as he instructs us. Psalm 16, 5. The Lord is my... We just wrote these down, these references, if you want to look them up later. Psalm 16, 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Psalm 73, 26. My flesh and my heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my, guess what word? Portion forever. Psalm 142, 5. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. What's the best thing you can have in the land of the living? The Lord. It's not just what he can give us or do for us. It's who he is. This is the simple teaching of Luke chapter 10 here as it winds down. Jesus is reminding us, not that Martha's bad and Mary's good, but he's reminding us amidst the frenetic busyness of life and the schedules of even good things that must be done, there is one thing that rises above. There is one thing that is sweeter and truer and the good portion is to abide in him. So, three simple applications as we, as we close in view of this text. The first... It's precisely where we started this morning. I love when the Bible is itself, the Bible itself prescribes what we should do. Psalm 34, 8. And this is a glorious truth. It's a glorious exhortation. Scripture tells us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Notice that the biblical instruction is not Nod your head and agree that God is good. You know, sometimes we can do that in church. We know this. We understand intellectually that God is good. And we can sit in church or we can hear these truths and just sort of move on. We can nod our head and agree that God is good. That's not what Scripture is inviting us, exhorting us to do. We're called to taste it. To experience His goodness. So how do you do that? Well, a few pointers from someone who screwed this up quite a bit in life and has the scars to prove it. One thing. Perhaps you agree, like I think is pretty plain, that this is the clear teaching of Scripture, that God's words to us are life, that His presence to us is the highest and greatest joy. If you're a follower of Christ, I hope you're nodding your head in agreement. But you see, there's often this gap, this lag between what we know and our experience, right? There's the, the right answer and then the real answer. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Yeah, Zeb, you keep going on about that. But I'm not really tasting the goodness in life right now. I have a hard time experiencing the goodness of God. Well, I'm ashamed to say there was an embarrassingly long amount of time in my life as a follower of Jesus between when I knew these truths to be right and good and when I was actually walking in them. This is not a shame fest. I'm not trying to twist the knife. But I just want to ask you, Christian, if you are looking at your life and you are seeing 
numbness and plateau. You feel like you're stalled. Could it perhaps be that you know this, but you're not eating very often? You're not tasting and seeing, and you're not, so, so you go back, how do you do that? Well, you just, you go to the source, just, just read it, just listen to his words. This is not like eating broccoli. Sorry if you love broccoli. It's the good stuff, and it's an acquired taste. The more you spend time with Him, the more you just plead with the Lord in prayer and in the Word to reveal His goodness to you, the more you will find that He develops your palate for the things of God. Oh, how I long as a pastor to run in a place, to serve in a place, where God's people understand that He's not just Savior, but He's the prize. He is. His Word is. His presence, His Spirit is all we have. It's our highest good. All right, I'm beating the horse. It's dead. Um, one more practical note before we leave that one. In a different dimension, um, perhaps you find that you are doing a measure of this tasting, but you're still struggling. Well, at least one of the things that I found from my own life is it's just confession, confessions from a broken, distracted man. It is easier for me to read the Bible than it is to pray. I just love these ideas. I could tear up this truth. I could just spend forever. But, it, but I would find myself sitting down, finding alone time with God, reading Scripture, reading Scripture, reading Scripture. Okay, all done. About my day. You know what this distracted heart needed to do? No, the answer is not stop with the Scripture. The answer is talk to Him. So perhaps you nod your head and you would agree that he is good, but you'd say, okay, I'm doing the scripture thing, but honestly, I'm not really being faithful in prayer. I just would simply encourage you, <laughs> focus more over here. Not to the expense of scripture, but speak to him. He's alive, and he wants a relationship with you. Perhaps you... you You've got no problem praying to the Lord. You kind of have a, a stream of consciousness relationship with Him all day long. But the reality is, you need to grow up into His truth a little more. You need to see Him more clearly in the truth that His Word provides for us. Kind of like taking up golf and reading all the literature and knowing all the terminology, but never stepping onto the golf course. How good are you going to be? I don't know. I'm not a golfer. <laughs> this is so very practical and simple for us, but we've got to apply this. If you take anything away from this passage, anything away from this message, just may it be this, that the primary place for a disciple of Jesus is at his or her master's feet. All right. Second way to apply this to our lives today, I think it could be distilled from this question. Ask yourself, as you're looking at this passage in verse 41, what was Jesus' rebuke to Martha? It was a gentle rebuke, but a rebuke nonetheless. What was the issue? It wasn't that she was serving. Serving's good. Serving your master is good. What was his rebuke then? Well, verse 41, it was that she has become anxious and troubled about all these things, too many things. And isn't the way, friend, this how it works in our lives too? So often, so very often, when we find ourselves out of alignment, when we become consumed like Martha with self-pity or bitterness, or when we're caught up comparing ourselves to other people, what's buried deep down behind all that 
is the worries, the fears of a restless and anxious heart. So, how do we... How do we apply God's Word, God's truth to a worried and anxious heart? One simple application, one simple remedy is to recite, it's to recall in our lives the promises of God. Just stand on His promises. Stand on His truth when we're tempted to be overwhelmed by worry or fear. I've listed just a few of them here. I think we've got them up on the screen. Just a few of them that I struggle with or or that that I love tend to struggle with. This, This is my big one. Fear of man. I think as humans, so many of us struggle with this in different ways. We desperately want people to think well of us. That we're smart, that we're funny, that we're good, that we're filling the blank. Galatians 1.10. Here's, here's, here's the promise of Scripture. Here's, here's the truth of God applied to that fear in our lives. Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Man, that one's on repeat in my distracted heart. Fear of man, Galatians 1.10. Maybe for you it's worry. Maybe you're prone, perhaps like Martha, to be consumed with all that's around you. Matthew 6, remember? Jesus teaching on the kingdom. In his Sermon on the Mount, he says, look up at the birds and look down at the grass and take note. Look at the birds of the air, the grass of the field, not toiling, not working for anything, yet God clothes and feeds them. How much more so will he take care of you? Matthew 6 is a powerful application to the worried heart. How about how about? Security, some of us fear, sometimes even rightfully so, about safety, about health, about wellness, about our bodies, about how it's going to go for us in the future. If you're fearing for your security, you can apply Luke chapter 12, verses 4 to 7. Don't fear what they can do to you, Jesus says. Fear God, who's the one, ultimately, to seal your eternal destiny. And He's the one, by the way, who knows the number of hairs on your head. He's got you. He's the one who knows every time a sparrow falls and you are worth more than many sparrows. How about this one? Some of us who struggle with loneliness. I love how the Gospel of Matthew closes. The very last thing Jesus says to us after His resurrection in the Gospel of Matthew, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Just a a quick snapshot of ways to apply God's Word, to stand on God's promises in the midst of a distracting world that leads us, that leads our worry-prone hearts away from Him. Very last thing. We should, I think, as we think about the good portion, as we think about resting and abiding at the feet of our Savior, we should, Friendship Community Church, rest in the certainty of Jesus' assurance in verse 42. Did you note that last thing He says about Mary? Not only has she chosen, excuse me, the good portion, he says at the very end of chapter 10, it's not going to be taken from her. Isn't that beautiful? Nobody can take from her this intimacy with her master. There are so many things in life that can be taken from us. Our health, relationships, all kinds of stuff. There are so many things outside of our control, but no one, Jesus says, speaking of Mary here, 
And no one we know from the broader testimony of Scripture can stop us from abiding in Him. No one can take that from us. And you can sit at the feet of your Savior in joy and in sorrow, in plenty and in want, in sickness and in health. And this good portion that Jesus speaks of here is going to be ours, not just here. It's not like no one can take it from you now. No one can ever take it from you for all of eternity. This, after all, is what heaven is. Isn't this how eternal life is gloriously described? In Revelation 21.3, it's us with God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Church, we were made for this. Sure, you're a good engineer. You're a great teacher. You're good at all manner of things. You've got a fantastic family. Blessings from God. Do them with all your heart as unto Him. And that's not why you're here primarily. He made you for Himself. And the end game, friend, is that you sit with Him, you dwell with Him forever. And Jesus says, no one can take that from you. So if you're here in poor health, if you're here just beset by any number of problems in life, the simple truth that God's Word is leading us to this morning is there is a better portion. Choose it. Choose Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the simplicity of Your Word this morning. There's some of us here who have not heard one new fact today at church, and that's okay. Lord, we plead with You that we would grow up into the grace of seeing and savoring You, our Savior. Help us to live for the good portion. Help us, Lord, to cling to the good portion. Help us, Father, to prioritize sitting at the feet of Your Son, our Savior. Forgive us when, like Martha, we let the cares of life, even the necessary things of life, Drag us away from intimacy with you. And our plea this morning is, Lord, give us heavenly taste buds. God, help us to taste and see that you are indeed good. You tell us that this is eternal life, that we would know you, the only true God, and your Son Jesus, whom you've sent. Give us a taste for eternity, even now, even now. We love you, and we ask all these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Let's stand and sing.